Um, last week, we, we started by thinking about how God has very high expectations in the way that we use our tongues. And we recognised that what we can say about the tongue also applies to the written word. And I think that's even more relevant for us today because um, we have so much more spontaneous written words than they had in the first century because we have text messages and emails and social media and, uh, and things like that. And, and it's in the spontaneity of those types of written words that we have the same danger as we have with the, uh, with the spoken word. Our words, um, written and spoken, do have tremendous potential for good. And God has these high expectations that his children, children of God, us, that will use that potential for good things, to glorify God, to reach out to others with God's message and to build one another up in love. But as James looked at the church that um, he knew, the things that were going on in the churches that he was writing to, when he looked at the fights and the quarrels that he was seeing and hearing about, he also saw in the tongue the potential for great harm. And he said that it was like a deadly poison. He said it was a, a world of evil. The precise opposite of everything that God expects and intended. Now I don't want to repeat everything that I said um, last week. And uh, if Stuart was here, I'm sure he wouldn't want to repeat the um, illustration either. If you weren't here last week, speak to Stuart about it. I think it hurt. Um, but we're just trying to make the point that a small amount of force can create, can, can create a, um, a great and devastating impact. And I think um, Stuart felt that um, last week. So I don't want to repeat all of that again. But I think we can only understand the importance of what James is talking about in the passage that we're going to look at today, which, by the way, is James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. We can only understand the importance of this passage if we understand what James was so concerned about in the first place. So I think the main teaching point that we should carry forward um, and into this week's passage is that we should never underestimate the tongue or the power of the written words. Um, James talks about how uh, a powerful horse can be controlled by a tiny bit in its mouth. And he talks about how a great powerful ship driven along by strong winds could be directed by the smallest of rudders and then he talked about the devastating impact of how the smallest of sparks can destroy a whole, a whole forest. Now the title of last week's subject in the syllabus, and also the title in many of our Bibles, I think, is, is Taming the Tongue. Um, I think actually it's a more appropriate title um, for this week's uh, subject. Um, I understand why, it, why, you know, why, it's, why the syllabus is the way it is. And as I say, many of our Bibles will have taming the tongue over the first part of the passage. I don't think the first part of the passage really tells us how to tame the tongue uh, at all. Um, but we need to understand the danger. We need to understand the danger if we're going to um, begin to learn how to tame 
the tongue. So that's the first thing, I think. Recognising the danger is the first step. Recognising and understanding that one unkind or hasty word, one careless word, one thing, one thing said without <coughs> considering somebody's feelings, one um, passionate defence of our interpretation of scripture without considering why somebody else might see it differently, all of those kind of things can be the spark that burns the whole house down. And obviously that's not what we want to do. And I summarised James's message like this. I said that really what he's saying to us today is that before we say a word, and before we send an email, and before we tweet an opinion or post anything on Facebook, we should remember that we can never take it back and that we should be very, very careful because unwise words have the potential to cause a completely disproportionate amount of, um, of harm uh, and, 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 and hurt. So why are we looking at this week's passage? Well, it's because just being careful will never be enough. Being careful will not be enough. That's why we need this week's passage. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, what comes out of someone's mouth is what uh, defiles them. We can't help it, can we? No matter um, how good and righteous we might appear to be on the outside, if the old nature is strong on the inside, then our sinful thoughts and attitudes are just going to come out at every opportunity. It's like our tongue is constantly plotting new and imaginative ways to help us put our foot in it. And I cannot be the only person here who knows that from personal experience. Now James is saying that it's a lack of wisdom that is the problem here. Um, but I don't want you to think that this is just about things that could be said in a, in a slightly different way. We sometimes um, think about wisdom as that extra quality over and above common sense. We sometimes think about being unwise, that it's just part of growing up, that um, it's just an aspect of immaturity, that actually, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't outgrow just with adolescence. It's an, it's an element of immaturity that we have to varying degrees for the whole of our lives until finally we get to the point of being an old wise man or an old wise woman. Uh, so, um, James has a completely different take on wisdom to that. And it's not age-related. And it is the answer to how we contain the tongue. So let's read the passage. It's James chapter 3, and reading from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom, but if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So the passage 
start with a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, we know the, wi the word wise can mean different things, can't it? It could mean being shrewd, uh, cunning, clever, learned. We had a definition in our Thanksgiving this morning, isn't, didn't we? Um, wisdom is the correct use of knowledge. But actually, in all of those things, various types of knowledge, worldly knowledge, can all be applied in a, in a wise way. Uh, the shrewd or the cunning or the clever or the learned person, they can do all of that correctly applying knowledge to the thing that they want to achieve. But I think here, James is talking about spiritual enlightenment. He's talking about having a knowing, discreet understanding of spiritual things. Not just a knowledge, I stress, but an understanding of spiritual things. And in contrast, he talks about the other type of wisdom, which is probably the same one which is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul is talking about the philosophy of this age and how the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. So one form of wisdom is about spiritual understanding and enlightenment, and the other is about spiritual ignorance and darkness and not knowing God. And then what we have in verses 14 and 16 that we've, to 16 that we've just read are some of the hallmarks of that worldly wisdom. Bitter envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and then there's like a catch-all that's thrown in there, every evil practice. Christians aren't immune from that, are they? We're not immune from that, those hallmarks. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits, he was writing it to Christians. There would be no point in writing it if there was no potential for those kinds of attitudes uh, to be present in their lives. And, and, and James is writing to Christians, saying that if they're harbouring those attitudes in their hearts, he says, don't deny it. Sort it out. And what Paul and James wrote to the Christians of their day is equally apply, apply, applicable to us, isn't it, in the 20th 21st century. Now I don't want to dwell on the earthly wisdom this morning. I'd like to think about the wisdom that we see in verse 17 and it's described as the wisdom that comes from heaven in the NIV. Uh, in other versions I think it says the wisdom that comes from above and of course we're not thinking about this wisdom coming from any particular place at all are we? It's not like it's something you can order on Amazon Although it'd be quite good, it'd be quite handy if it could. Well, all, all, all James means when he says from heaven or from above, he's just pointing us to God, isn't he? He's pointing us actually back to chapter 1, verse 5, where we read um, a few weeks ago, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But what does it look like? What is this? spiritual <coughs> enlightenment what does it what does it look like what is this spiritual completeness or maturity which are two of the words that James uses in chapter one in connection with verse five about the wisdom that we can ask God for he says it's linked to completeness and maturity so these are the kind of things I'd like you to have in your mind when we're thinking about this wisdom it's enlightenment it's spiritual understanding it's completeness it's maturity but what does it look like? Verse 17 
James breaks it down into some of its component parts, into some of its characteristics. And in verse 13, he, he, he gives us a test that we can use to assess ourselves. I don't know why he does it in this order. Um, I'm going to do it in, I'm going to do it in, in the opposite order. As I say, I'm gonna, we'll, do the, we'll do the test after we've thought about some of, the, some of the characteristics. So let's read verse 17 again. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You might notice that it's a similar list to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and that gives us another clue on how we can cultivate these characteristics in our own lives. It, it is the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? If we let the Holy Spirit produce that work in our lives, you know that we can resist his work if we choose to. So we can't assume that any of these characteristics will, will be part of our lives just because, just because we're, we're, we're Christians. <coughs> so let's go through the, the different characteristics. James says that it's first of all about purity. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we think of purity as, as, as something which is <coughs> unspoiled. There's nothing in it that shouldn't, shouldn't be there, like, like what we'd expect of, of um, a pure gold. And God is holy, and he expects his children to be holy as well, doesn't he? Philippians 2 says, we should become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So James is saying that we should be first of all pure. There should be none of those other behaviours that we read about, the hallmarks of the, of the worldly wisdom. There should be none of those in, in our lives. So it's first of all pure. Then he says it's about peace that we should be peace-loving. Now, some people, it seems, love a good argument. I assume that they love it because they seem to do it quite a lot. Uh, and yet there are other people who will avoid conflict at all costs. Uh, I think I'm actually more with the latter. I, I, I mean, maybe, I mean, you might have a different opinion, but I think I, I, I hate conflict. But, you know, actually, to be a peacemaker, a peacemaker the, the term that we have in verse 18, sometimes means that we can't avoid conflict and we should engage with conflict, especially if it means tackling things or people who are disturbing the peace in God's house. But the peace-loving peacemaker will do it in a peaceful way. They'll, they'll lead by example, won't they? They'll be peaceable in nature, they'll be quiet, they'll be inoffensive, and, coming on to the second characteristic, they'll be considerate. Or a word that's closely aligned to that, I think, is the word gentle. And it's one of those words that reminds me very much of the Lord Jesus. You know, in Matthew 11, he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. There should be a softness in our character. There should be no harshness. We shouldn't be brash, and certainly we should always be considering the needs and the well-being and the feelings of others 
Again, another verse from Philippians 2. It's nice the way all of our, these subjects that we've been looking at uh, actually do come together. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, We should value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others. We should be considerate. We should be gentle. And also submissive. Now, the word submissive it suggests a person who is willing to learn. Someone who is willing to be corrected or persuaded. Someone who isn't stubborn. Someone who doesn't want their own way all the time. Now we might not immediately think of that as being a characteristic of the Lord Jesus, perhaps. Not when we think of him as being King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one to whom all authority has been given, the one who is above all. Who does the Lord Jesus need to be submissive to? But he was, wasn't he? He was subject to his father's will when he came into this world. We imagine reasonably that he was subject to his parents. Scripture says that he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And of course, we so often quote those words from the Garden of Gethsemane when he said to his father, not my will, but your will be done. I guess the, the challenge, the question that we all should ask ourselves is how often do we willingly do something that we don't want to do? How often do we willingly go along with somebody else's idea or somebody else's approach, even when we think our own way would be better? You know, such a willingness really is important in the church community, where people often feel quite passionately, and for good reason, about the things that they think should be done, and the way in which they they should be done. But if there's no willingness to subject ourselves one to another, oh, and by the way, willingness isn't saying, yes, I'll do it, but, but, but making everybody, <laughs> letting everybody know that you don't agree with the approach. If there's no willingness to truly and genuinely subject ourselves to one another, then that's when we get the fights and the quarrels that James goes on to talk about in the next chapter. So, it's submissive. And it's also full of mercy and good fruits. And we often think about God's mercy as being the counterpart to God's grace, don't we? God's grace is giving us the things that we don't deserve. Forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, and a, and a, a wonderful and amazing inheritance. And God's mercy is denying us the things that we do deserve, like the wages of sin, death. So we have those things which are kind of a, a counterpart to one another. Mercy has the thought of pity and compassion. It's like what God says in Exodus 34 when he declared to Moses that his, uh, what his name was. He said that he was full of mercy and compassion. It's one of the characteristics of God, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And if these characteristics are the hallmarks of our lives, then there will be good fruit, won't there? There will be good works, there'll be good testimony, there'll be good character, there'll be the fruit that God is looking to all of us to produce in our lives. And then the last two, impartial and sincere. We should be impartial and sincere. You know, I think uh, this word, the first one, impartial, is pointing us to the same virtue that we were being encouraged to have in chapter 2. 
we shouldn't be people who show favouritism. We shouldn't be people who discriminate. We should be people who love um, equally to all, that we show love equally to all. And the term sincere just means that there should be no falseness or, or, or play-acting. Um, our, our, our motives should be genuine. There should be no dodgy, dodgy motives. And we should genuinely want to embrace the holy life that God has called us to. In chapter 1, you might remember that James was talking about people who, um, Christians, who were unstable, uh, people who were double-minded, people who doubt because they lack the commitment to the Christian faith and obeying God. It says, these are people who, in a sense, are wanting actually just to be in the world and just have their Christianity in their back pocket as a sort of a backup. And that is a lack of commitment. And that's the reason why the things that they were asking for, they weren't getting because they, they were doubting. It wasn't, a, 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 it wasn't like in the spirit of the person who came to Jesus and said, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. We all have an element of doubt perhaps and when we ask God for things. But I think what James was talking about then was really about people who doubt because really they're not committed to the thing in the first place. And if we're like, like that, there will be a difference between the things that we say and the things that we believe. We will be people who talk the talk without walking the walk. Or actually, I should say, people who talk the talk without having the desire to walk the walk. And I just make that distinction under the heading of sincerity because when we look at our own lives, we know that there are always occasions when we fail to walk the walk. We're always going to let the Lord down on occasions. But what's important is our desire. We should be constantly striving. We should want to walk the walk. So how do all of these things, how do all of these characteristics help us to tame the tongue? We can't answer that question, though. It's a bit, it might have been nice, but it kind of doesn't answer the objective that we set ourselves in these two weeks. How do they help us tame the tongue? How does this wisdom, this spiritual enlightenment or maturity, affect the things that we say and write? Well, it should be fairly obvious, shouldn't it? It goes back to what Jesus said, that we, the words that we thought about before. Jesus said that what comes out of the person's mouth is what defiles them. The defilement's on the inside. And that can be seen in what comes out of the person's uh, mouth in their speech. So likewise, we were reading in chapter 1 that it's our evil desire which gives birth to sin. And if the sin, in the context of what we're thinking about, is a cruel or a hurtful word, or if it's something that's spoken to someone without any regard for their feelings, then the root cause of that word is what the speaker thinks about the, th the person in the first place, isn't it? And th there might be other sins which are, which are the root cause of that thought, such as pride or, or, or jealousy and, 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 and so on. But the point is, is, if we don't like the other person, if we've got no regard for them, then it doesn't matter how much we bite our tongue on one occasion or another, eventually the poison's going to come out. Eventually, we're going to tell them what we really think of them. And if it's not nice, it's going to be ugly and it'll hurt. 
But if there's nothing good on the inside, sorry, if there's nothing but good on the inside, then what comes out of our mouths will be good things all the time, won't it? Even if it's uncontrolled. Uncontrolled compliments, uncontrolled encouragement, offers of help, comfort and praise. It might be a bit cheesy on occasions. And actually, if it's completely uncontrolled and it goes on a bit, it might also get a bit worrying. You know, there's only so many compliments that you can take. Not that I've known that experience in my own life. But, you know, it's, uh, you still, it, it would still be so much better than uncontrolled evil coming out of our mouths. And actually, as we were thinking, that if this is all aligned to the fruit of the spirits, Galatians 5, then it is going to be controlled anyway, isn't it? Because self-control is one of the fruit of the spirits. So what about the test? I said there was a test, didn't I? And it's actually back in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In chapter 2, we learned that whilst we only need faith to be justified, good works are the evidence of true faith. And I think what James is saying here in chapter 3 is that good works done with humility and a good life are the evidence of heavenly wisdom, are the evidence of spiritual enlightenment, completeness and maturity. And it's not about how many ladies we help across the street, and it's not about uh, how many meetings we attend, it's not about how much money we give to charity, and it's not about how many church committees or working groups are we're on. It's bigger than that. I'm sure we can all point to various good works in our lives. Things that we've done here and there. But James says the test is a good life. Do all our works and behaviours and motives, do they add up to a, to a good life? A good life from the world's perspective is, is different to a good life as God sees it. That's the difference between the two wisdoms. We need to step back and look at our lives, where we've come from, the progress we've made, the things we're doing and how we do them and why we do them and ask ourselves the question, is this a good life as God would see it? Many people care about how they'll be remembered when they're gone, and that's not unimportant. But the key question is, what does God think about your life? What does God think about my life? Are we displaying the qualities that James listed in this passage? We'll all find out one day when we stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, but, but then it'll be too late to do anything about it if we're found to have been lacking in the wisdom from above. So, how do we tame the tongue? Here's a very concise summary of what we've been thinking about these two weeks. Firstly, recognise the danger. That's what we get from the first half of the passage in chapter 3. Secondly, complete a self-assessment. That's what we've been thinking about today in the second half of the passage. And then thirdly, 
go back to chapter 1 and do what it says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. This wisdom, it will be given to you. Thank you.